Welcome to the FinTech One-on-One Podcast, formerly the Lend Academy Podcast, episode number 292. This is your host, Peter Renton, chairman and co-founder of Lend at FinTech. Today's episode is brought to you by Lendit Fintech USA, the world's largest fintech event dedicated to lending and digital banking. Lendit's flagship event is happening online this year on April 27 to 29, featuring many of the biggest names in fintech. We'll have the CEOs of Afterpay, Figure, Brex, Varo, Dave, Finicity, just to name a few, as well as many leaders from traditional finance. Lendit's 2020 event was also held online, with many people saying it was the best virtual event they'd ever attended. Lendit is setting the bar even higher in 2020. 21. So join the fintech community at Lendit Fintech USA, where you'll meet the people who matter, learn from the experts, and get business done. Sign up today at lendit.com slash USA. Today on the show, I'm delighted to welcome back Ken Reese. He is the CEO and co-founder of Covered Care, and he's also the author of the new book, Teetering, which we get into in some depth. We also talk about his new company, Covered Care, which is really providing financing for elective medical through the, the medical provider. Um, really interesting company, got some very interesting uh, ways of underwriting and operating, which we, we talk about, and uh, it, it, we also get Ken Ken's perspective on this underserved population, uh, population that he calls tightropers, that's from, from his book. And uh, we, we talk about their challenges and what, what really can be done to, to help them. It was a really fascinating episode. Hope you enjoy the show. Welcome back to the podcast, Ken. Good morning, Peter. So let's just kick things off. Uh, we had you last on the show when you were the CEO of Elevate. And so we'd love to get the, the listeners caught up, you know, what you've been doing the, the last few years. Well, it, you know, I took Elevate Public in 2017, and that I think would be a great example of be careful what you ask for. Uh, being a CEO of a public company uh, is a very different thing from the fast-paced entrepreneurial world that I was used to before. Uh, you know, I've always been an innovator, and boy, you start to slow things down quite a bit as a, as a public company CEO. So I stepped down uh, with the recognition that, you know, there's more innovation needed in this space, in particular, the space that I'm passionate about, which is serving non-prime consumers uh, in the U.S. And, and internationally as well. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Okay, so then maybe we could... Um talk about the, the genesis of your new venture. Uh, it's called uh, Covered Care. You know, what was the founding story there? Why did you decide to start it? Yeah, so, so, I mean, we all know that, that non-prime Americans still suffer from, from poor options. You, you know, the, the fintech community and the world of fintech innovation has been tremendously productive to provide better and better solutions for prime customers, but it really hasn't had the big impact on broader U.S. you know, sort of economic situation, which is defined by income instability and uh, lack of savings. So as I began to understand or think about what I want to do next, it was really, I knew it was going to be about providing a new and better solution for Americans and get them the credit they need. And what we identified, the big obvious opportunity was around patient financing. So consumers that need healthcare, uh, whether it's elective healthcare like LASIK or, or uh, getting their teeth straightened or general dentistry, what we realized was there's great prime solutions. You have companies like, well, bank companies like Care Credit and Affirm, 
or, or an ally, but then you've also got sort of fintechs like Affirm and Green Sky that have really come in and provided great patient financing solutions. Uh-huh. But if you don't have, you know, at least a 640 credit score, they're typically going to decline you. And so over half the people that need patient financing don't get it. And the numbers are fantastic. The numbers, you know, $400 billion in out-of-pocket healthcare spend annually for Americans. Obviously, a large percentage of that coming from financing and about half of that being difficult to, to, to provide because customers don't have the credit scores that the prime finances are looking for. So what we decided to do, let's find a way to have low rates. Let's find a way to have an easy application process that fits in seamlessly with what the, the, the healthcare providers are doing in their offices. And let's make sure to approve almost everybody. So that's what we've done. It's growing very quickly right now. We've got a $100 million line from Fortress, another $100 million line that we just landed. And uh, we're seeing terrific growth. And as we, as we want it, you know, north of 85% approval rates on customers that everybody else is declining. So what are the options then? Like before you, before you started Covered Care, for those, if you've got a, a less than 640 FICO and you've got a dental emergency and it's going to cost you $2,500, you know, what have been the options for people? Well, a lot of people are just told, sorry, you're going to have to leave the, the, the office and come back when you found some money. Right. <laughs> so they have to go, you know, they'll go find a payday loan or a title loan or something like that to, to, to get their, their teeth fixed. I mean, it's, it's, it's really a, a pretty horrific situation. Some uh, healthcare providers have stepped in and, and offered in-house patient financing. They just sort of keep these loans on their books, but you know, healthcare professionals don't know how to underwrite. They're not in the business of, of collecting on their customers. So that, that was a bad situation for them. So we've been really able to come in and, and in a lot of ways, we're, we're providing uh, a real benefit to all of the three components here in my mind, the customers themselves, because they can get approved right away with rates that are less than credit card rates and very flexible terms that pay out over time. The healthcare providers don't have to, to do any sort of in-house financing programs. They can get their customers approved and they can grow their businesses because we're uh, for uh, at least one of our larger uh, accounts generating about 30% of their overall traffic comes from, from our financing program. So we're yeah. a big piece of their growth story. And then um, we also work well with the prime providers because they, of course, get beaten up all the time. Why aren't you approving more customers? And by partnering with them, you know, people like Care Credit and, and Green Sky and others, we can help them be able to make sure that there's a full A through Z credit solution in the healthcare providers that they serve. So right. it's, it's really been a, a, a nice product to sell because we're not really competing against many people. That right. The providers that are doing it aren't you know, using the kind of technology and analytics that we use. Uh, they're not looking for the kind of very high approval rate programs. And oftentimes their APRs are quite a bit higher than ours. Right, right. So then, so how does it work? Are you... Are you a, is this a consumer facing product? Are you going through the medical practices themselves or is there a combo? Yeah, we're, we're through the medical uh, provider. So uh, in one case we have a, there's a telehealth provider, uh, actually a fantastic company called Byte, one, one of the fastest growing companies uh, in, in the U S in fact, just sold their business for a billion dollars. 
they send the customer directly to us from their, from their call center. It only takes a couple of minutes to get approved by us. We take a small down payment, set the customer up, they sign their agreement, and then we fund the, the healthcare provider directly. So very seamlessly integrated into their offerings. And then we, of course, ping them back saying, yes, the customer is approved. You can go ahead with the service. And in branch locations, a very similar situation where it's, it's interfaced directly from the branch system into ours. So then is this, so you're not, uh, like, are you putting in technology into the practice themselves or is this, uh, is this just a web-based thing? I mean, it sounds like there's a phone, you know, a call center as well. I mean, what, what's the technology you're using? Oh, yeah. So, and one of the things in the healthcare world, there's so many different variants of different types of technologies. So we have everything from a full API integration offering, and that's what the telehealth provider does. They just ping us with the customer PII, sets up a pre-populated landing page. The customer basically pushes one button to say, I want this this credit. They then give us a, a payment instrument for a down payment and they e-sign the, the credit docs, we send back via API the authorization to fund that customer's uh, healthcare procedure. So that's all fully automated in branch locations. Uh, typically, we have a branch portal that the, the branch staff can use to do essentially the same thing, initiate that transaction. We then ping, though, the, the customer directly with a text and an email, and they fill out the, the application, and then, again, we send the authorization back to the uh, to healthcare practitioner. So there's there's no uh, paperwork required. It just takes you know a minute or two and it's all integrated into the healthcare provider either through API or, or through this branch portal. Right. And then what about are you also working with like the high deductible you know, crowd where they 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 they've got a procedure and they just gotta they just gotta make their deductible. Are you, are you working with that as well, or is it really more of the the dental elective type place? Right now, it's primarily elective. So our right. core target verticals are dental, uh, audiology, hearing aids, ophthalmology, like like LASIK, uh, and the med spa arena as well. Okay, but we we think this is a. I mean, we internally look at a company like a firm and say, wow, a firm figured out how to serve a whole lot of different industries, but you know, they're serving just the top end of all the customers in all these industries. And we right. sort of feel that this company ultimately isn't a firm for the rest of us. Right. So as we learn more about the elective healthcare procedures, we'll move into broader healthcare and eventually outside of healthcare as well. Okay, so, so let's talk about the loans themselves. What, what's the typical like dollar amount, uh, interest rate, loan term, that sort of thing? Yeah, so the, yeah, the loan terms are all sub credit card rates. Um, we cap out at twenty percent, but we have we've got plenty of customers that we've worked with to have a sub ten percent uh, APR as well. Um, typically, about a two year repayment term. And typically, we get a, somewhere between a five and fifteen percent uh, down payment as well. So we've, you know, these are are very much market rate uh, credits, very flexible for the consumer. But one of the things, of course, from our perspective, we're serving non-prime customers, and our customers are defined by income instability and lack of savings. So we built a lot of flexibility into how the customers can push out payments you know, restructure their loans over time. And that's one of the things that 
prime lenders and people that you know have have a more traditional experience in credit don't get that this is a customer that will pay their loan, but it may take a little longer and it may be a little bit more bunched up where where they can pay, uh, let's say around tax time, they can pay extra, but in other parts of the year, maybe they've they've, uh, got a reduction in income, they may not be able to pay as much. So one of the things we've really built into our platform is that sort of flexibility for payments. It's essential for serving the, the underserved consumers in the U.S. Right, right. And maybe that's that's part of it. I want to dig in. You said that you you approve around 85% of your customers. These are non-prime customers. And you said you top out at 20%. Now, I'm sure there are some listeners that are thinking, hang on, this doesn't really add up. Um, how it's, <laughs> not, it's an unsecured loan. Um, right. tell, us, uh, tell us a little bit about the technology, the data, underwriting. How are you able to, to offer these loans at such low rates? As you know, Peter, my, my experience, I've, I've got 20 years of, of experience in non-prime financial services uh-huh. in the U.S. and the U.K. In, in my, my last company, I served 2.5 million Americans with over $8 billion worth of credit. And that was a very tough situation because we were pushing money to them uh, for whatever needs they had directly into their bank account. This business has a lot of things going for it. You know, one is it, there's just really not a lot of true intent to defraud you. I mean, it, it's not a whole lot of people are trying to fix their teeth uh, in, a, in a fraudulent fashion. Right. <laughs> They're actually using services. Yes. Um, so that's a big, big plus. Right. Uh, the other plus is, you know, we are able to get multiple payment instruments. So we're, we're doing some things I was never able to do before. We underwrite both the customer and the payment instruments they provide. So we're able to do some really interesting things. And then, you know, one thing to mention, my partner is uh, Tim Ranney, who uh-huh. founded and grew Clarity Credit, the number one subprime credit bureau, which was sold to Experian. So the two of us have spent the last 20 years doing nothing but but serving and underwriting and understanding non-prime consumers. We've got a pretty unique and, and successful perspective around how to do that, and not in a way that we're just looking to skim off the cream, but we think the real need is to find ways to underwrite almost everybody. So in the way we make that work economically, yes, there's the APR to the customers, there is the down payment and some level of of, of evaluation of credit instruments and that. And then there's also a discount to the healthcare provider. So there's a small discount as well. So you add those things up and we have found a way to make that work with that sort of high approval rate. Yeah, I mean, that's um, that's really interesting. I mean, we've had, I've had Tim on the show before. He's, um, you know, he's obviously, he created uh, a pretty uh, pretty amazing company um, that I know the Experian has it now. But so the, the thing that I remember with, with from him is he was always looking for past trade credits that may not have been picked up by traditional credit bureaus. And I presume then that is part of your strategy here. Is that correct? Absolutely. I mean, part of the problem that a lot of, of, of lenders have is even if they know how to underwrite deeper, their financing lines force them to cut off at, at you know, predetermined uh, FICO bands. We made it clear when working with First Fortress and then the, the most recent financing lines that we're going to underwrite all the way down. In fact, you know, we do about you know, 10 to 15 percent of our customers that we're underwriting today are completely unscorable. So, uh, and they actually perform great. 
you know, we're, I mean, to give you a sense of the uh, types of customers we're serving, uh, our biggest component, but about 40 plus percent of our customers have a 500 to 599 uh, credit score. So we're definitely serving, you know, the, the deep non-prime and, and actually almost 20% are sub 500. So we're, we're definitely looking at that very deep level. And so you're exactly right. Yes, we use traditional credit information, but we're constantly, you know, digging into the type of information, the clarity collected on credit, you know, attributes that wouldn't be typically collected by the big three. And then also other things that we can determine, including, as, as I mentioned, things like payment instruments that they're providing to help us get that little bit more insight into the customers. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so um, when did you write your first loan? Uh, for failing new company, right? Yes. Yeah. We we actually initially launched in just before the the pandemic uh, huh. in February, which was interesting time. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And, uh, it, it, it takes me back to the first company I launched right after nine eleven. <laughs> so I, I obviously have a terrible uh, history of picking times, but and it was fascinating because we were going direct to consumer at that point. Saw the market, you know, demand for traditional credit really dry up quickly. And we quickly pivoted into the world of, of patient financing because that market actually demand went up because now more than ever, every healthcare provider understands that every patient is critical. They can't you know, let patients come in and then not be able to provide that service to them. Um, so it ended up being actually great for us. We were uh, live in August with uh, in the first healthcare practices and uh, growing since then. Right, that's good. It's probably good because you obviously elective, all, all elective procedures were, were, were in the, you know, from March through May, and it was pretty much nothing happening, right? And then, so you can spend that time building up the business. And then there's been a big backlog because everyone yes. was uh, was really waiting to get going. Okay. That's right. And, and actually, um, you know, our biggest business client was, as I mentioned, a telehealth client, and, and they were doing um, teeth straightening. And what they found was, you know, now people were sort of sitting at home. They were on Zoom calls, seeing that their teeth were <laughs> not good, and, and their demand skyrocketed. So, so their demand uh, helped our demand. And now that that uh, you know, COVID is hopefully looking like it's in the rearview mirror. We're now seeing tremendous demand from the, the brick and mortar uh, healthcare providers that, as you've, you've said, have have been uh, in many cases shuttered for months and and eager to start serving their customers again. Right, right, and I imagine. And then, so how how are you getting the word out uh, to? You know, it sounds like you're focusing on the providers, the healthcare providers. How are you getting the word out there? You know, it, it's it's been. I mean, you never want to discount the sales process, but basically, the sales process. You walk in and say, "We can approve eighty-five to ninety percent of your your declines," and the customers will be treated very fairly with a with an APR that's less than a credit card rate, and the discount that you will um, be charged for the service is going to be less than you'd pay for insurance. So it, it, it's been pretty pretty straightforward. You know, we're really focused on the large providers right now, and that's sort of where we're focused. And of course, we're at the stage of our development, you know, that the, the temptation is always to uh, extend a little bit too fast. And I, I think we have the, the discipline to do this in the way that as we go from vertical to vertical, we can understand the unique needs and really build out a platform that supports the scale that this business should should seek. Because as, as I mentioned, now we look at this and 
And when we see out-of-pocket healthcare spend in this country of $400 billion, this is a very, very large need, and we need to be built up to serve that kind of volume of demand, ultimately. Right, right. Okay, well, I want to switch gears completely now and talk about your new book, which uh, yes. you were kind enough to send me, which was sort of the catalyst for our conversation today, uh, called Teetering. And I'll obviously link to it in the show notes. First question is, I mean, why, well, maybe, it's a, maybe you can sort of step back and say, what, what's the book about? And then also say, why write this book now? Yeah, well, I, I will make the shameless plug that uh, it was the number one hot new release in financial services, according to Amazon, a couple weeks okay. ago. So, okay, okay. You know, I mean, the problem is everybody likes to talk about the challenges facing uh, Americans today. I mean, you know, whether it's uh, in investors or entrepreneurs or policymakers, everybody understands the things they've heard about Americans having less than $400 in savings in case of emergency but they don't really understand the customer. And so what I saw in all of these conversations were a lot of false narratives. And so the book is really about trying to provide true insights into the issues that drive financial instability in this country and what all of us can do to make a difference, whether we're entrepreneurs or investors or, or we're in Congress, we need to wake up to the fact that, that the U.S. is very different from where it was. I mean, uh, I actually got started in this business because of a, an odd conversation I had in a, in a branch back when I was a consultant. The branch manager kept complaining about the lobby trash and how that was a big problem for him. And I finally realized he wasn't talking about garbage. He was talking about people that were cashing checks in his branches and, and, and you know, he called them lobby trash. And it made me realize that, that you know, people and traditional institutions that used to serve average Americans were pushing people out of the financial systems. And, you know, as I began to write the book, um, saw that's happening sort of in, in education and healthcare and other things as well. But uh, it's really what, what I do in the book is highlight a lot of the stories. You know, we, we use a lot of original research uh, from the Center for the New Middle Class, which is a research institute I established at my last company uh-huh. to get these facts out there, get the insights from actual customers. And hopefully what this will do is, is give you know, entrepreneurs, investors, and, and policymakers, a bit of a roadmap for how they can make a difference. And in the case of the fintech community, how they can hopefully build some, some big and profitable businesses. Right, right. Because as, as I was reading it over the weekend, it, uh, it struck me, it's not really written for the people, that are the subject of the book, it seems like. It's more written for the other folks you said. Is that, was that, was that your intention all along? Absolutely. This was meant to give a voice to the people that everybody talks about. There, there's sort of a, a really interesting um, thing I've heard a lot. There's this if only they that I hear. Like I, I talked to a, a friend of mine, a very conservative guy, and, and he would say, well, if, if only they saved more, there wouldn't be a problem. And I, I would have to sort of explain, well, you know, <laughs> that's easier said than done, right? And then if I talk to my, my friends on the, uh, on the, on the left, they're like, well, if only the government, you know, put in place, uh, you know, wage minimum wage increases or union protections. And, and, and again, that isn't getting the answer either, because those things typically accelerate the problem. I mean, the reason we have such a hollowed out middle class is be really because of the impact of technology disruptions and automation and globalization. And the more you increase the cost of labor, the more you create more incentives to accelerate disruption and outsourcing and things like that. So I'm hoping this, this book can 
begin to provide a, a bit of a new narrative and a new insight so that people think about what we can do, you know, again, in the private sector and in, from a public policy perspective to you know, what I talk about is flatten the curve of income disruptions for, for average Americans. Um, that has an impact in, in the way we build financial services and it has an impact in the way that we think about legislation to help people get through the financial up- upheavals that you know, we saw in COVID-19, but are only gonna accelerate going forward. Right, right. And I noticed you, you call these people tightropers. So maybe just talk a little bit about you know, defining them and tell, just spend a minute or so just making sure that we all know who you're talking about here. Yeah, well, I mean, it's very much average Americans. We, you know, when we look back 30, 40 years ago, the U.S. had a great thriving working class and middle class defined by stability and the expectation of income growth. Now, however, all that's been hollowed out because of, as, as I mentioned, the technology disruptions and, and automation and then now AI, which is leading to more and more job loss and, and uh, job instability more than anything else. And then, of course, automation, uh, excuse me, outsourcing and globalization had a role as well. So now we've got, you know, north of 100 million American adults that are living paycheck to paycheck. They're working, many of them supporting families, you know, house owners. This is very much the core of the U.S., but as opposed to the core average American having uh, an expectation that they're going to be able to build up savings towards retirement, we have the average American living on a financial tightrope, always sort of at risk of something hitting them, an unexpected expense or a change in income that will leave them in, in, in a rough position, either having to drain what little savings they have, um, having to go to a high cost uh, lender or, or, or having to sell possessions. And, and it's something that is, you know, I've seen over the past 20 years serving them, this has become more and more mainstream. You know, when I started my first business in, in 2001, I was serving kind of a, an outlier customer base. And now it's, I think we've all realized this is the new reality in, in the U.S. And between the Great Recession and uh, COVID-19, I, I think we've all realized that, that this can impact a broad set of this country very quickly. And we've got to be more aware of it. And we've got to all kind of reposition ourselves to deal with the fact that we live in a fast moving, unstable country now. Right. Yeah, it's, it's interesting to me when I, I reading your book, and it just it struck me that there, you, you talk about this, there's no real you know, killer app yet for this population. I mean, I mean you've got, there's, there's companies like Chime and Dave, Money Lion, I mean, your old company, uh, Elevate, and others that are, you know, that are, that are serving this, uh, this population to some extent. But there's no one place that has just dominated this group. Why, why do you think that is? Well, I mean, first off, it, it is hard. I mean, right. you know, when you're, when you're trying to find, you know, financial products for a customer that, that you can almost guarantee will have some sort of financial hiccup between when you begin serving them and, uh, you know, when they're sort of finished with the product, that's a head scratcher to most people. But I also think that's what's exciting. I mean, that, that, these are the, the kind of markets that create really dominant leaders when people figure it out. And I think you're right. You know, you, the, the, the rise of the alt bank uh, has been really interesting. This is definitely, you know, companies that understand the fact that, that traditional players don't get it. 
And there's clearly a demand for a new type of financial institution. I think the other things that are going on that are really interesting is what actually um, my friend Ron Suber, who, who helped me with some of the thinking around the book, talks about the shift from debt to equity. When you have companies like House that are basically, you know, taking an equity stake, you know, in a house with you as opposed to it being just a, uh, just a mortgage or the rise of income share agreements, uh-huh. um, you know, ISAs, where people are taking an equity investment in the, the person going to college as opposed to just saddling them with more and more debt. And I think that's the sort of thing that we're going to see over time, that, you know, the sort of innovation. I think that the challenger banks are just getting started. They'll be doing more interesting things um, than really just providing a, a checking account. And I think some of these shifts from debt to equity have a lot of interesting upside for the future, I think. Right, right. And you also talk about, about the government's role and you, you interestingly, you spend a chapter saying what they should, what they could do that would be helpful and what they could do that would be harmful. And, you know, given the fact that we have a, you know, a democratic administration and, and Congress, at least for the next two years, where a lot of these, uh, you know, that they will, be, they will want to be trying to be helpful. They will err on the side of, of, of trying anyway. But maybe you could just, uh, just sort of sketch out what are some of the things that you think the government should be doing to help these tightropers? Well, as I said a little bit earlier, this concept of flattening the curve that we've all learned with COVID is exactly the way we need to be thinking about income instability. So, you know, there is this, I sort of split the, the policy prescriptives that we're currently seeing come out of, of Congress and the executive wing into things that are sort of looking back and trying to artificially increase stability, like increasing the minimum wage and uh, union protections and, and things like that. I, I ultimately don't think those are gonna be a, a positive. And if anything, as, as I said, I think they're gonna increase income instability because it's gonna provide more and more incentives for employers to find ways to automate or outsource. So we're gonna end up with some customers making more money, but net net more unemployment, more upheavals. I think the things that the um, the current executive orders are doing right though, are things like extending unemployment benefits clearly makes sense. If you're gonna have more people that are gonna have to migrate between jobs, let's find a way to, to, to smooth that process for them. So protections against evictions make a lot of sense. Protections against uh, aggressive creditors uh, make sense. And I think one of the areas that we haven't focused on enough as a com- country is helping people with tuition support for retraining. I mean, that makes to me a whole lot more sense than uh, forgiving student debt, particular in a lot of cases for, for people that have gotten the full benefit of that student debt. So I think if we can reorient around this you know, core concept of income instability as being the driver of these sort of financial challenges facing so many Americans, it changes the way we think about legislation and, and changes the way that we think about the best way to support people. Because, I mean, Americans are incredibly resilient. That's one of the things that I, I try to show in the stories that I, that I tell in, in the book, Teetering, is because they get it. They, they, you know, nobody is, is complaining. Nobody is, has, a, has a woe is me attitude. It, it, you definitely get a sense of people taking ownership for the decisions they've made in their life, wanting to be able to move on when life changes but they just need a helping hand. And that's really what I think we need to be focused on. Right, right. Okay, well, we're just about out of time, but one more question before I let you go. I, I, 
I really want to get your sense as, you know, it feels to me we're at an inflection point, and I would love to get your perspective on this, uh, that we are at this point where the tools now are available, um, the data is, is more prevalent. We have this opportunity to, to, to really serve these, these tightropers, as you call them, uh, in, in a much better way than we ever have before. So I guess, I mean, beyond what obviously your, your own company is, is really focusing on this, but the big picture then, uh, like, do, do you feel like in reality we will have this problem will be just as big at the end of this decade that it is now, or will we really make serious headway? You know, you know, you're exactly right. There, the, the the market need has never been been bigger, right? And I think there's more awareness of that than before. And also, the tools to serve that market need never been better. Between you know, Plaid having you know online access to customers' transactions. I mean, the sort of things that we can do to provide deep insights into how the customer is managing their financial life and helping them deal with it has never been better. But you know, one of the challenges entrepreneurs. You know, entrepreneurs tend to build products for themselves. You know, I, right. one of my favorite ones is the, the you know, I, I, I hear over the years, there's always a new entrepreneur that's found a way to serve the underserved. But when you dig into what they're trying to do, it's actually somebody who just graduated from Harvard, doesn't have a job yet and needs, you know, credit until that happens. Well, anybody can do that. I mean, that's, that's really right. not the kind of market we're serving. So I think it is going to take a, a bit more humility to step back and understand you know, who these underserved consumers are. But I mean, the market's never been bigger. Uh, and that's a great thing about, you know, the fintech community. You know, it's, it's incredibly, you know, resilient. It's, it's incredibly innovative. And I think as, as some of these new tools, and, and I continue to think about Plaid and others, you know, we will, we will get there. There's a, there, there's, I, I refer to the, the, the Tolstoy effect in terms of, of serving the underserved, where Tolstoy had that great line. He says, you know, all happy families are the same. All unhappy families are, are unhappy for a different reason. Mm-hmm. And that's sort of like serving prime and non-prime customers, right? All prime customers are the same. They've got lots of credit history and a lot of stability. But in the world I serve and this, this world of 100 million American adults, it's all very different. And I think there's a lot of different market opportunities to serve people who are new to the country versus people that maybe are overextended and recently went through, let's say, a one-time upheaval in, upheaval in their life, let's say a divorce or actually having a child or sending their child to college, getting them through that one-time disruption versus other people that are are gig workers and, and really sort of managing lots of different income flows all at the same time. So I don't actually think of it as a single opportunity. I think the smart entrepreneurs are going to be the ones who are going to look at this as lots of different, very targeted opportunities and build killer programs and, and killer offerings to serve these unique, different types of needs in the non-prime space. Okay, we'll have to leave it there, Ken. I hope you're right. I think it's a, it is, it's a, it's a fascinating time to, to be in, in fintech and a fascinating time to see all these new innovative offerings like your own that are, that are coming, to, coming to bear here. So best of luck and thanks again for coming on the show, Ken. Thanks, Peter. Really enjoyed it. Okay, see ya. You know, I agree. I think we're at an inflection point right now where I think, you know, I've had, I've had 
multiple conversations, probably five, six conversations just in the last three months alone with entrepreneurs who are looking to serve this community that uh, that Ken talks about here, these tightropers in, in new and innovative ways and in ways that reduce cost. And I think that's the that's really the the, 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 the fact that Ken is and covered care is providing these uh, you know these people with with really very reasonable rates um, for for that population and um, you know it remains to be seen where, you know how successful they can be long term but you know the fact that these these are you know Ken and and Tim Ranney very experienced people serving this population there they know how to price these loans and i and i'm confident that, that, that they've really hit on something here that is going to make a tremendous difference and i think what this is what people are pushing for that we want to be able to you know it's expensive to be poor we want to be able to get these people's services and and, and credit especially that is much cheaper than uh, than what it has been historically. Anyway, on that note, I will sign off. I very much appreciate you listening, and I'll catch you next time. Bye. Today's episode was brought to you by Lended Fintech USA, the world's largest fintech event dedicated to lending and digital banking. Lended's flagship event is happening online this year on April 27 to 29, featuring many of the biggest names in fintech. We will have the CEOs of Afterpay, Figure, Brex, Varro, Dave, Finicity, just to name a few, as well as many leaders from traditional finance. After a successful virtual event in 2020, Lended is setting the bar even higher in 2021. So join the fintech community at Lended Fintech USA, where you will meet the people who matter, learn from the experts, and get business done. Sign up today at lendit.com slash USA.